0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackness. And Chris, I have some news for you. We have gotten some sensitivity readers for Lost Explorers. They're going through every episode before it comes out and making sure that everything that we say is nice and inclusive. So we have to watch that we don't comment on anybody's weight, race, race, gender identity or um you know just general state of mental well-being
1: so no discussions of fat lesbian dwarves
0: that's it would be real i'm not going to do it but it would be so funny to just bleep that whole thing <laughs> and have people wondering what you just said what did chris say
1: well for- <clears throat> Listeners who uh, may not have heard this story, at one point, uh, well before we started the series, David came out to Vegas and we had quite an interesting anthropological expedition into Old Town. And David was befriended by a little person, celebrity impersonator, in other words, a mini Mr. T in this case. Mm-hmm. And I am still looking for the photographic evidence of it. But it was quite a, an interesting evening. I have
0: but, it on my phone. I have that photo on my phone.
1: Do you? Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. there you go. I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm so pleased to hear that. But I think I may have told you the story then in response to the mini Mr. T that at one point I was hanging out at Atomic Liquors, which is... Uh, Probably the oldest and best known surviving bar in Old Town, Vegas, Fremont Street. And they had trivia contests uh, every week. And the Mm -hmm. leading, the gun table, the people to beat, and they were super competitive, were captained by a little person, a dwarf, a male dwarf who used a cane And had once had something of a minor Hollywood career and and self-supporting work as, uh, you know, an entertainer of sorts. And he was extremely bright. And he was also an incredible drinker. And by the end of the (laughs) evening, just ripped. And they had won again. And he was gesticulating with his cane walking stick. And apparently he launched into a little litany, which is very common for him uh, in this just magical accent. I hated the term little people. I was making good money when I was a dwarf. And (laughs) it was the just perfect counter to the PC woke ideas of, cleaning up language and being inclusive to the point of vacuous uh, meaninglessness, you know?
0: Look, man, I'm, that's a great story. And I was telling you off mic that I made a prediction about 80 episodes ago that this whole thing would kind of burn itself out. And I'm not sure that it will anymore. I'm reading an article now from Compact magazine called Wokeness is Here to Stay. And it feels to me living in Oklahoma that you don't see very many examples of the kind of things that we talk about in day-to-day life. Although I guess you don't really ever talk to people enough to get that much of a sense of what they think. But it really does seem to be... I think here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to stick with my initial prediction that this stuff will burn itself out, but I will amend it to uh things are going to have to get a lot worse before they get better. And I think we're seeing that week by week by week on this show. It's funny because occasionally you and I will go off on our tangents about this stuff. And when I listen back to the episode. I'll think to myself, that's very entertaining, and that's all well and good, but I wonder, is it really that bad? <clears throat> <laughs> and then this week in particular is a great example because you and I had a great conversation last time about the Black National Anthem, and and I was thinking to myself, oh well, did I, you know, did I go too far? I don't. And then I see uh, Raoul Dahl's books being re-released with a new sensitivity read version where they have removed certain pieces as a matter of fact as we talk let me bring up some of the some of the Raoul Dahl uh what
2: have i done have i done something wrong here
0: here we go let me bring up some of the Raoul Dahl stuff if you'd like to, for listeners, anybody who doesn't know, what's going on with Ralph Dahl's books?
2: Well,
1: they've been reissued by Puffin, which is an imprint, the children's imprint of Penguin, which is one of the giant, you know, global conglomerates. It's, it's not the old penguin that we used to know, although it still has that name and many of the imprints and infrastructure. Uh, but it's a pretty savage uh Censoring and not only a deletion or excision of words, but uh, rewriting, which is uh, a kind of, you know, well, it's happened before. I think this has been. This is the biggest news, probably since the Dr. Seuss uh, banning mm-hmm. of, of certain books, which has, has had the same effect in the marketplace. Um driving up prices for original editions and pre-censored versions uh Sotheby's is reporting some of Dahl's first editions are, have jumped like 700 percent and you can now you know if you have uh like really good first editions you can be looking at seven grand you know wow yeah. wow
0: yeah that's incredible. So, Here uh, is- go ahead sorry go ahead finish well
1: so there's a whole thing here that you know and and not so long ago there was also the enormously controversial editing of huckleberry finn the adventures of huckleberry finn which purported originally to uh be exclusively and tactically aimed at removal of the n-word which is uh It was pretty clear to to most people in in the writing community who heard about this that it wasn't going to stop there. And it didn't. It didn't stop there. It moved into terrain that was completely outside any diversity and inclusion frame. It was more along the lines of what's been done with Shakespeare and the King James Bible of just simply contemporizing. Uh, language and flattening all of the beautiful nuanced curves of twain's ear for dialects which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for people who know the book know that he follows you know that lingu- linguistically down the river and it's a beautiful analog to the journey within the, the story uh so censorship and editing you know it it isn't metaphorically or you know like a slippery slope it is one it always is one it's that pointedly so take us through a couple of examples
2: this is
0: from the telegraph augustus gloop is no longer fat mrs twit is no longer fearfully ugly and the oompa loompas have gone gender neutral in new editions of Raoul Dahl's beloved stories. The publisher, Puffin, has made hundreds of changes to the original text, removing many of Dahl's colorful descriptions and making his characters less grotesque. Which, I'll pause there for a moment because what initially attracted me to books like James and the Giant Peach, I have a funny James and the Giant Peach story, by the way, uh, and The Witches were these kind of grotesque, covers, the BFG, all these books were uh, interesting to me in the same way that Shell Silverstein books were, right? They had that kind of cool art style to it. The review of Dahl's language was undertaken to ensure that the books can continue to be enjoyed by all today, Puffin said. References to physical appearance have been heavily edited. The word fat has been removed from every book Augustus Gloop in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory may still look like a ball of dough, but can now only be described <laughs> as enormous, which seems yeah, worse to me. It obviously, seems,
1: that's, a, that's an improvement, right? Doesn't that I seem
0: mean, worse? Isn't oh, that worse?
1: Well, it uh, shows the arbitrary nature of this.
0: In the same story, the Oompa Loompas are no longer tiny, titchy, or no higher than my knee but merely small and where once they were small men they are now what are they chris small people they're small people passages not written by doll have also been added rolling in his freaking grave man yeah in the in the witches a paragraph explaining that the witches are bald beneath their wigs ends with the new line there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that.
1: They should have just maybe made a mention about merkins.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to get into the merkin market. Seems like it's pretty lucrative. An emphasis on mental health has led to the removal of "crazy" and "mad," which doll used frequently in comic fashion. The mention in Ezio Trot of tortoises being backward, the joke behind the book's title, has been excised. The words black and white have been removed. Characters no longer turn white with fear, and the big friendly giant in the BFG cannot wear a black cloak. What the fuck, man? <laughs> well... Oh, it gets better. It gets better. Okay. References. (laughs) 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 References to. References to female characters have disappeared. Miss Trunchbull and Matilda, once a most formidable female, is now a most formidable woman. Boys and girls has been turned into children. The cloud men in James and the Giant Peach have become cloud people and fantastic mr fox's three sons have become daughters what matilda reads jane austen rather than rudyard kipling and a witch posing as a cashier in a supermarket now works as a top scientist mrs twit's fearful ugliness is reduced to ugliness that seems mild compared to the other shit these people are doing While Mrs. Hoppy in S.E.O. Trot is not an attractive middle-aged lady, but a kind middle-aged lady. Last paragraph. One of Dahl's most popular lines from the Twits is, uh, you can have a wonky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth, but if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams. It has been edited to take out the double chin. I'm you know, laughing so I don't cry.
1: Well, you know where where to begin. Uh, the
0: additions seem to me to be the worst. What do you think about that? the 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 changing of the language is bad enough as it is, but where they really, in my opinion, go beyond the pale is adding lines to the text.
1: Oh, un- unquestionably. I mean, I think that's unconscionable. Uh, there are there are a couple of things going on here. Is that uh we don't need to mention the name of the editorial consultancy external to Puffin that was retained to uh, perform this task. And they, there may have been other other people involved, certainly people within Puffin, uh, their editorial staff. But an external consultancy is behind this. And they have a practice of really not basing anything they're doing in terms of market research or engagement with, you know, children. They're not indexing that in any way that could be defended, you know. It's purely, purely subjective. And they've managed to carve out uh, a kind of, you know, reputation for themselves if you uh, you want to use that term. Uh, I happen to uh, to know... One of the individuals involved, and uh, at one point she was uh, she has editorial experience, and as it, it chance to happen, I uh, I tried my hand at a children's story. It was called Big bottomus Hippopotamus, and it was uh, for very young readers. And I was working with a very good illustrator friend of mine at the time. And she, the work was beautiful. I loved the artwork. And the story was, was, I think, you know, good for its age. It was about big Bottomus hippopotamus was, was friends of all the other animals and they would all tell her their secrets. The problem was big Bottomus wallowed all day in her pool and really didn't sleep well at night as a result and would talk in her sleep and all the animal Mm -hmm. secrets would be heard, and Mm -hmm. she began to lose her friends. And she meets a character named I Know a Rhino, who is a sort of goofy uh, artist wannabe, but he's intent on getting in shape. And he lumbers around and crashes and thrashes and bashes around, and Big Bottomus ends up joining him and doing some exercises, and sleeps better as a result. That's collapsing. You know, the whole story. Well, this woman absolutely savaged it purely on the basis of any promotion of the idea of exercise and its link to weight. Now, this was many, many years ago, many years ago. And you could already see within the children's book world. uh my sister used to always say to me, why don't you try a children's book? And I'd say to her, look, it's the most competitive and gate-kept realm of publishing. And many of the people doing the gatekeeping have very little experience with children. They're not librarians. They're not people who have children of their own necessarily. They're not bringing that to bear. What they found is a soft target to rule with editorial intensity based entirely on what they think is good. And that could be motivated by anything at any given moment. I think that this is an appalling direction that is happening. And it's, it's we now have multiple layers of, of censoring. And I think, as you point out, the addition of new language, which some people, I, I actually know some writer friends who well, that's not censoring. I said, well, no, not technically. It's not, a, you know, no, it's not redacting
0: text. It's worse. Can I? Can I just interject because I, I have to say that I have shown a lot of restraint when it comes to these people who want to come out of the woodwork every time the Overton window shifts and talk about how it's not a big deal. This is a big deal. And anyone who is trying to explain this away is the enemy at this point. Because no, no. Put yourself in your own shoes eight years ago and, you know, read what I just read. And I guarantee you, if you're not poisoned by the current discourse, you would find plenty to have issues with I mean this to me is the line in the sand and you can laugh at it all you want but you have to put the line somewhere and when I saw this I thought to myself this is just this is too far this is too crazy you you, you can't you can't do this from a historical perspective from a artistic respect perspective there are so many layers to why doing things like this are a bad idea. And so people who want to explain it away, oh, it's just, well, how many times do you think about Raul Dahl in your day-to-day life? Not very many because I'm 36 years old, but that doesn't mean that this isn't important. Well, he sold 300 million copies. I mean- Yeah, he was huge to me when I was seven or eight years old. I played the centipede in the James and the Giant Peach production. Fantastic. That put That's on. a great bit of trivia. I didn't know. I played it. My mother sewed extra legs onto my torso using pantyhose and socks. And we would, we sat there and she sewed them all on. And there was one moment of the play. I was in the fifth grade. So I would have been
2: 11, 10, something like that.
3: Yeah. 10.
0: All right, 10. So 1996, we're putting it on and I had all these songs that I had to memorize and I was very nervous about singing my songs. So when it came time for me to sing uh, one of the centipedes, four or five ditties, I thought I would break the ice by jumping up and down and saying the word pantyhose over and over again while touching the pantyhose and i brought the fucking house down yeah brought the, a start, the man the school loved it and my teacher mrs tassy great woman was livid with me because she had practiced for 3 months with these kids to get this right and on the at the moment of truth i uh, i ad-libbed i went off script so you know, I don't want to linger on this too long. I want to get into the the aphorisms and the band and everything like that. But when you mentioned that, you know, some people said, well, it's not really. Can we fucking can we stop? Can we please stop making excuses for this stuff and stop treating each one of these incidents as an isolated argument that needs to be won? And can you step back for a second and just admit that this is a little crazy.
1: Well, it's completely crazy. And I would flip the argument around and say, come forward, please. Who who, who amongst us is happy about this mm. beyond this consultancy and, and maybe one or two editors at Puffin? I, I can't imagine anyone with any intellectual, artistic or, in my view, moral credibility who would be happy about this.
0: It's a moral I, issue. I'm glad you said and that, too.
1: Have people who identify with the woke, politically correct direction and, you know, we choose kindness and trying to avoid harm. People who've, who have bought into that, a lot of people in education, for starters, and I think with the best of intentions and also probably a degree of mental illness in my in my estimation,
0: um, <laughs> Nobody's ever put that better. You have the best of intentions and not a little touch of mental illness.
1: <laughs> yeah, Look, I, 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 I sincerely
3: believe that. I think that,
1: that's, <sighs> that is definitely anecdotal lived experience. But I think there's a growing body of, of really tangible evidence that is, you know, that could be mustered there. But this is also happening, you know, there, it's a convergence of things that can't really be ignored either. We have this attack on major authors, such as Dahl and, and Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss. We have J.K. Rowling under death threats for certain conflicting views with the trans community. Meanwhile, we have tumbling literacy rates, tumbling. And we have new AI, as we've spoken of, that has really breached the mainstream in in terms of chat, GBT, and generative generative, uh, writing tools. That it's an attack on, on thinking. It's an attack on writing. It's an attack on the love of language and things that make writing really real, as you know. Um, I mean, it's all those exciting, dirty, tough, vicious, crunchy, shaggy, buttered words that get stuff happening for readers. And we're we're dooming the new generation. well, Gus's age generation. I mean, if these people have their way, they will water down, dilute, and completely uh, remove the spine. That's kind of a nice thing. book spine. They're going to make books spineless, you know, and yeah. that is the goal. Yeah. I can't believe yeah. it's not their goal.
0: And yeah. I, I yeah. think
1: that we need to get past the excusing some of our well-intentioned liberal friends who feel, I think, probably a bit embarrassed and uh, concerned about this, but not to the point where they will speak out about it but i don't i can't imagine i haven't seen any writers speaking for it i really can't i can't imagine where
0: where 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 does this end what books are gus supposed to read when he's of reading age if this continues what if they do this to the hardy boys or to goosebumps
1: it's not what if it's going to the only what if will be in much more in real time as conversations get edited and people get canceled much more, more and more quickly because who knows what, what, where this could lead because it's now open to complete subjective opinion. If I don't like it and I'm in any position at all to nix something, well, then it will just get nixed. And that's what these people want. They want that power. You know, this is the irony that the, the, the social construct, uh, social realist, social justice, neo Marxists say that, you know, it's all about divisions of power. There is no reality. There's no master narrative. It's only about power. Well, then yeah. they prove that by showing that that's really all they care about.
2: What if we went back and we
0: edited... For sensitivity purposes, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Why don't we go back and do that? There's plenty of stuff in that autobiography that we could, we could change. So why I don't think, we do that?
1: I think that is a beautiful rhetorical javelin thrown into the circle of, of these people. I, <laughs> I don't know what, I know that they would only, they would react with hostility Uh, sensing (laughs) where you're coming from, but I I can't imagine them having any framed, uh, you know, intellectual repose to that. I just
0: can't. Yeah. I mean, why why not? Why not? Why don't we just whitewash the whole thing and change all the language that doesn't suit us? And I could, you know, you bringing up the people who say, well, that's not censorship. And I saw somebody else bring up this point. Well, don't they always update? you know, the Bible gets updated for, for modern language. And I don't have the 45 minutes necessary to explain why what they're saying is stupid, but they already know. They already know why that's dumb, right? Updating something to be in the vernacular of, of the people of the time is different from changing the language of a children's story to reflect a, a, uh, a blindered, very narrow focused ideological agenda that everybody might not agree with at the end of the day
1: well well they're definitely not going to agree with um a couple of things that the entire field of translation upon which every reading person's Uh, sense of the world depends. Thank God we've had the great translators we've had, and we've had access to that, people like you and me anyway, at least, you know, reading, thinking people, not, you know, other people wouldn't care. But this raises enormous questions for translation. But there's another issue there about the Rudyard Kipling substitution for Jane Austen, well Jane Austen is under Jane Austen thank you very much is now under fire and gets trigger warnings at three major private colleges because of dysfunctional relationships and the presentation of women is not quite you know what it should be today. Well you know I mean it just becomes ridiculous. It becomes ridiculous, and it is part of a mental health crisis. You know, Jonathan hate
0: the. Uh, I'm familiar the with hate. Yeah, I like Haidt. I like hate. Yeah,
1: he's he's posting uh, on on Twitter quite a bit now about he's really formalized his investigation into the teen mental illness epidemic. And his, his bugbear is social media on that. But he's really sharing some very interesting stats. And he's a very, um, you know, he's a soft-spoken, sort of gentle dude. But the woke people don't like him because he's such a good social scientist. He actually really took that seriously and believes in it. And is doing some really, really good research. I mean, it's, you know, it's social science isn't... Um, You know, hard science, it never will be as as quantitative, doesn't pretend to be, but where it can be, he's really doing it. And I think this all connects with this. I mean, it's a mental
0: illness epidemic that takes different Mm -hmm. forms. Mm -hmm. I really like this framing of the issue, because I think that... My mother called me today because she was having an issue with a parent. My mother's a special ed teacher and uh, one of her parents is giving her problems and she's explaining the whole situation to me. And I told her, uh, you know, mom, this person doesn't sound like they're mentally all there. This sounds like a person who might. And she says, well, yeah, but considering, you know, the authority that I have in my position, you know, she's going to come in tomorrow and, want to talk to the administration and me about XYZ and it's not my fault and this, that, and the other. And I said, mom, it might help you to picture this woman when she comes in as a cartoon baby because you are, you are my, my poor mother. She sounded so confused about what this woman was going on about. And I said, you're you're trying to understand something that's not meant to be understood. She's mentally ill. And I think people like you and me too often are brushed off by these, you give them a lot more credit than I give them credit for. Because you say uh, well-meaning. Well-meaning, but mentally, I mean, the mentally ill part is really where we need to come from because I'm putting my foot down. I'm a normal 36-year-old guy who completely functions in society I don't just function I succeed and exceed expectations in society and I pay my taxes I like uh cool movies cool books good music beer whatever you know I'm not mentally ill and these people are And so we can't have these kind of debates or talks with these people anymore, because this Raul Dahl stuff—they—they gas. This is where the term gaslighting comes from, right? Is like they're gaslighting us into making us seem like we're overreacting, or that or that we have the problem. And it's like, no, you people, we're not on the same level. You all need to go get some serious help. (laughs) like this is what happens when mental illness is championed and financially compensated in a society like these people who want to change these words among other things would be in an insane asylum 50 years ago and i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that's probably where they belonged that was probably where they should have been
1: well, I think there there there's an interesting implication of uh, from what you're saying, and I think this is a really really deep problem. Is that we know there are issues within academia, the arts and humanities, and the media, in terms of being completely taken over by ideologies on on both sides or across any sort of spectrum. It's That's where these problems really emerge from. And then they ripple out into now corporate life, the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's become, it really has become something very serious. And I think that you're right in kind of revising your prediction about this because it is ingraining itself. It's being baked into legislation by the current administration. It's Mm -hmm. not going to just disappear in terms of any kind of social trend, it's getting a little bit more legislative policy making uh, traction, but it it wouldn't get anywhere and it wouldn't have gone this far if one profession had not completely let go of the wheel. Mm -hmm. And it's the psychology and psychiatric community.
3: Mm -hmm. They have been
1: uh completely corrupted by mm-hmm. pharmaceutical money
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and insurance money, and they have found easy arguments to be completely soft and to get mushier and mushier. And the the big annual publications about um the uh the the definitions of mental illness and treatments, uh, which I used to really enjoy, they're fabulous. The DSMA thing, uh, those have just gotten the more and more inclusive, yep. so, and meanings and boundaries get you know, and there's no sort of treatment sort of options, but it's now possible to as as you you know, set of yourself to meet and exceed society's expectations. It's now possible for a lot of people to do that. And they're nuts. And they're they're
0: doing it. They're doing it very, just to be clear, like they're doing it because they're nuts. Yes. Because they're the right kind of nuts. Uh, You know, people who are talking to themselves on the corner are still talking to themselves on the corner. But people who would have had
1: their hearts
0: bless their hearts. I I feel more, I feel more uh, uh, solidarity with those people than with these people, because these people are, uh, well, they're mentally ill, but there is a, there's a, there's an even more cynical level to it that I, I subscribe to. I think that if you were to really put somebody into a clockwork orange mental torture chamber and break them down, these sensitivity readers and these people who Purport uh, to believe in all these crazy collegiate ideologies. Not children, by the way, but the adults who are permissive and let this kind of thing happen. I think that I think that they know it's bullshit too. That's my big conspiracy theory. I don't think I think that because I know we have a lot of people who are more liberal who listen to this program, and uh, you know, every once in a while I'll say something that upsets them, but I think. I th- I'm talking to those listeners particularly right now. I think you know this is bullshit. But I think you're either afraid or you know you can get something out of pretending that it's real. What do you mm-hmm. think about that?
3: Well,
1: I
4: certainly think
1: there is an element of, of fear and it's very genuine fear in those, those three institutional frames of academia, the arts and humanities and the media. I think people can really lose their jobs and, and not to mention all the stress and, and conflict of, of you know, what might ha- happen if they were able to hang on to their jobs, an unworkable psychological mm-hmm. uh, condition. So I guess no, I think that, that there's um, there's a degree of seriousness to this that I think is, is hard to ignore. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think the fact that the, you know, it, it's part of a I mean, the idea of, you know, a pack of hounds, uh, witch trials, whatever sort of metaphors for the ganging up on individuals, that's a very scary thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that there are people who, you know, are still alive who remember the McCarthy era who aren't really up in arms about this, the darkness of that. One of my... um, uh, good few university good friends, Latino dude who taught in the film studies department. He taught in the theater um, I, my class was just upstairs from him and the timing was good so I'd often go down and, and check out his course. And he was teaching a course on on ho- blacklisted Hollywood, you know And I thought I knew something about that, some of the major figures who were really uh, you know driven to suicide um there's a beautiful one of the few moments in woody allen films that i think is really moving is the um the front line the front page with is it's the newspaper one either front line or the front page but zero mostel the wonderful fat european actor who's a star in the producers he uh plays a blacklist, well, he plays himself, really, a blacklisted actor from that period. And he rents, uh, hires this beautiful hotel room and this great, you know, bottle of champagne. And the first time you see the movie, you don't know what's going on because he seems to, you know, why is he laughing? You know, and then you realize, oh, he jumps out the window. And I, I think... The the tremendous irony is all of this is motivated by the fear of harm, trigger warnings, the snowflake safe space thing, which was kind of a novelty uh, news feature on Fox News 10 years ago. Yeah. And it was good to, you know, stir up the right wingers and, you know, it was good copy, as they say, but it, it's it's not novel anymore. Right. It's gone way right. overboard, and it really does have some horrific effects on, on people's lives. So if anybody who's interested in kindness and, and doing the right thing and not pushing any buttons, well, I wonder why there, there's so much vitriol, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah I there's think that behind it. I'm glad that you said that because to, to elaborate on my former point, what i think is if you imagine a scenario where a co- like two colleagues are having an argument and for the sake of this particular scenario we'll say one's a man and one's a woman and they're having a very pedestrian argument about whatever the particulars of their business are the the woman in this case not all women but in this case the woman
2: How <laughs> yeah i understand it's just like
0: yeah i'm this is where we're at now right yeah in this so in this case the woman uh decides that she is going to go to hr and talk about talk to them about the microaggressions that the man is uh throwing her way and the microaggressions don't have to be specific they don't have to be anything in particular she can talk about the again the very pedestrian mild arguments that these two bickering co-workers could get into on a daily basis about the functions of the company and so she takes it to hr but the way that she decides to present it is as a civil rights issue where she's the woman he's the man and he's presenting all these microaggressions to her blah 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 so what you have at that point is a a kind of mexican standoff She knows it's fake. The accused knows that it's fake. And HR knows that it's fake, but they all have these guns to their heads and they're in it now. So what do they do? And I think that little story just sort of exemplifies where we are as a culture with all these debates. Everybody knows that what they're talking about isn't real. <laughs> that it's yeah. fake and then but they, nobody nobody can break are you familiar with the term kayfabe have you heard this term before
1: yeah yeah we yeah. was it's it's originally
0: professional wrestling
1: yeah that's what i thought yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah professional right. wrestling where everybody like the heroes and the villains aren't really yeah. their friends in real life essentially yeah showbiz showbiz but nobody can break the kayfabe Nobody can break the showbiz. So we all have to commit to these roles and everybody's terrified for their livelihoods. And, and so from a third, a third, or maybe even a fourth party perspective looking, I use that example because I actually saw that literal thing happen uh, to a video game designer. I was listening to a podcast from 2013. You remember a decade ago, the good old days. I was (laughs) listening to these two guys talk. And I thought, I'll bet you the guy who's talking right now got canceled at one point. And no reason why he wasn't saying anything misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic or any kind of phobic, but he had a very assertive male voice. And I said, this guy's not working today. Well, in 2021, He was running a video game studio and his female co-workers all decided to quit at once and they cited not sexual harassment. They were very clear on that. No, he never sexually harassed us. He never made inappropriate comments. He never used foul language around us, but there is a history with him of toxic microaggressions and he got kicked out of the company that he helped found because of these microaggressions. So, (sighs)
2: It's all fake. Everybody
0: knows it's fake. And I think that some people there, there is a 0.01% of people who don't think that it's fake and they're mentally ill. Yeah. And the rest of us are all just playing this Mexican. We all have guns to each other's heads. Like, is anybody gonna is anybody gonna say anything about this? Or I kind of want to keep my job. But do you see what I'm saying? Am I making sense? Oh sure yeah, no, sense.
1: No, 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 you are. It's uh, well, look, I, I, and one of the things that that's maybe a, a way to kind of put uh, a little bit of circle around that. This is that the idea, like what I'm finding really puzzling on a fairly large scale, uh, and I'm certainly not alone in seeing this. It's being, you know, commented on from from many points of view is there are so many angles of this uh so-called progressive uh culture that's emerging that is blatantly misogynistic mm-hmm. you know it's, it's so it's inverted itself yeah. i mean it it's incredibly strange this whole thing of not being able to define what a woman is i mean i think that the in many ways uh some pretty classic oriented, you know, feminists
3: Mm -hmm. near my
1: age are looking around going, wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's like when a truck jackknifes, you know, mm-hmm. like if you ever sort of learn, you know, like doing a heavy equipment sort of, you know, training and anything. And, and, you know, they, they try to put you in those frames that you could actually deal with, you know, skidding and how you turn and, you know, you got the mirrors and you, you know, and you see this, you know, this big booty that you're driving behind and it's starting to move up a little bit. And you think, well, wait a minute! It's going to shear off the, you know, the the mm-hmm. linchpin. I, you know, whoa, and you start steering it that way, and I think that's really what's happened. And it's eventually going to twist itself around into this weird, <laughs> and it's
0: going to be glorious in twenty thirty three when we're back to where we were, and guys oh, like I you and me just, just...
1: That long David, Come on, I I don't hey, have look.
0: That. Hey, I had I had a really optimistic outlook and i was wrong about that i'm maintaining my optimistic outlook but i'm adjusting my expectations based on what i've seen i still think and i've said this on the podcast before so i will condense this into a soundbite i still think that we are on the cusp of of the self-canceling event and what i mean by that is that something is going to make national headlines that is so absurd and that isn't just absurd, but that actually forces the canceller to be canceled, that it's going it's, – it'll event – the tail will be swallowed at that point.
1: It's sort of like the devouring television set experiments. Google on yeah. that you'll get some interesting, you know what I mean? It, it, it's it's uh, it's an optical illusion thing that uh, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. says a lot about perception. But I think it says a lot about the idea of TV and mirrors. But if, if there are physical analogs to what you're talking about of where that can actually sort of be performed. And you see something kind of disappearing up its own rectum, so to speak. <laughs> We're going to get yeah.
3: rectumized.
0: Rectomized. So, on that note, we're doing things a bit out of order today, but that's fine. Uh, do you have an aphorism and a band for us today?
1: Yeah, look, I'll start with actually. This. And I have to say that you know that term that you're uh, microaggressions, uh, that is the the term that just drives me the most insane. Uh, and I've often thought about the microaggressions as the name for a band but i think it's just too common now and i realized that if you did have a band with that name that everyone would hate them even if it was you know um but when i did think of that i it was a group that had um they all had tourette syndrome and uh couldn't control it so that was part of their act but the real uh band for this week is modern wiener modern wiener and the background for that was the oscar meyer Mobile. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: you know what they look like you know it, it's a hot dog on wheels car it's a novelty car very phallic of course because hot dog yeah we know that but it's this weird sort of nod back to the 1950s when the Mobiles would tour America, like something out of my book, Reverend America, driven by the little Oscars, hired midgets, or as we know today, little people dressed as chefs. Little people, not midgets. Okay, we want to make sure we're not using words like midgets and dwarves for little people. So anyway, there's a new mobile and it's out and it's been out in Vegas, and somebody broke into it to steal the catalytic converter and it made a big news story and i thought god that is so perfect that says so much but modern wiener is based on a movement of of modernism modernism uh wiener being for you know vienna mm-hmm. uh wiener modern and that was a really really strange interesting moment in time we're talking v- uh vienna in like just before World War II. Chandelier decadence and this grand optimism, but also a kind of cyclone perfume anxiety since futurist euphoria tinged with apocalyptic anxiety because we're just on the edge of the carnage and catastrophe of World War One. So this is a German-Austrian-based uh, band, who are, look? they're looking into that, they're trying to recreate that sense of what Vienna was like then with, think of it like artists like Gustav Klimt. You know, he went from, you know, paintings of, of people at the opera house to nudes and vaginas and angels and just went right off. We've got Freud, we've got Ernest Mach, and Kafka's writing, not that far away, you know? There's some really, really weird stuff. And they're kind of like um, a craftwork style band sort of recreating this strange sense of old-style decadence and politeness mingling with nihilism and end times freak out. Recreating... The Rise of the Recording Era. So they're starting off with some very, very primitive uh, Thomas Edison-style recording technology. And the effect is, is very strange.
0: Mm. Um, Have you noticed that with your bands, there's a theme yeah. to a lot of them, which is yeah. the return to analog? Yeah. There's a lot of return. To, there's a, a deconstructive element to all of them. There's obviously an absurdist uh, comedic aspect to them as well, but they all deconstruct, <clears throat> and not all, but a solid percentage of them also return to some kind of analog, semi-performance art relationships with their with their instruments. There's very few like like these are uh, this is craft work inspired. Going back to analog.
1: Yeah, and going back to to a performance-based thing. I think that's very astute. And I'll tell you, it comes from my own uh, musical uh, composition, experimentation, connecting with with people in a live music sense. I think we've gone as far as MIDI and and completely synthesized studio-based work can go. I don't really know where that can go to in a music theory sense. I think I've been listening to a lot of the minimalist movement, a lot of, you know, what is now, you know, commercially ambient music. I've been making that kind of, I think we need to break that all down. And that's been part of, I think, a larger deconstruction process that is on the go, you know, Um, and it suits our time. Um, There's... A great uh Adolf Luce, L O O S, uh, was a major architect of this period. And Loose House, so H A-U-S, L-O-O-O-S, H A-U-S.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: If you Google on that as a as an architectural symbol of that moment, and it's also on a corner, so it's beautifully positioned. Well, their album is called Loose House but as in L-L-O-S-E and house as in house music. So it's breaking all those things down. And I do think that there is a kind of, I've got a few, I've got other band ideas going different ways, but it is deconstructionist of both the the genres of music and also really the, the music technology of today. I'm looking
0: at the, I'm looking at the loose house right now. Give me your impression.
1: of Let, let the listeners hear what you think
0: of it. Uh, It's a very disconcerting building. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's got kind of a facade with some, uh, with some columns going on. So there's a bit of classical it's, it's, about as on the nose as you can get for a for a symbolic structure. it's it's got the kind of uh, a palisade look to it with uh with a modernist any building that you would see in a downtown stacked on top of it. It's a very it's a very interesting mishmash of a building and, uh, it's so strange to put that kind of toothy, imposing facade on a, what strikes me as a very pedestrian building outside of its, you know, a triangular position on a, it looks like a corner street. It's on there. Yeah. Um,
1: I think that's very well said. And I think you've touched on some of the biggest issues uh, in architecture of the modern age. And underlying it as we said you know in the notes for our book club when we were talking about Robert Irwin that the distinction between modernism and the emergence of the term postmodernism At the very outset, when postmodernist began to be used as a term, it applied directly to architecture and it made real sense there. It started to lose coherence and meaning as it sort of rippled out to embrace literary theory. Uh, In terms of of fiction, it had some meaning, but it just began to sort of lose. It just was Mm -hmm. used in so many different ways. But the postmodernist anxiety in architectural terms and all that architecture then really means in a deeper mm-hmm. metaphorical sense uh is i think that building is an emblem of it
3: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah That's it's 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 awesome. very strange it's like it's like putting a it's like a centaur of a building right nicely it's put a kind of, yeah. you know mashing up of two animals but without um,
1: necessarily feeling good about that in any kind
0: of. Oh, no, I didn't look at any pictures show. of this building of the Loose House and think. Uh, oh, that's a place I want to go into. Looks like a yeah. supervillain's hideout.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, OK,
1: well, that so that's that's my uh, band. And then there was. Um, a reason why I got to that, which we'll get to in a moment. <laughs> But my aphorism is, and this ties in with my, uh, all of my uh, work is connecting with the Lost Explorers idea. And, and it's my art exhibit ideas coming up from my major show in Seattle. The music I'm making and the memory book are all kind of working together. But here's the aphorism everything that's said to exist has been remembered by the past
3: mm-hmm.
1: this is what existence
2: means and i think that that in a very quiet subtle way
1: renews the dynamic ongoing energy of remember that sense of that that verb form that ex- that state of being which is what existence is we're we're remembered by the past in some way and that makes that puts us in a very odd position of being somehow the objects of some subject that we're not really sure we can locate or identify and we use very generalized terms of existence and being and the universe because of course we wouldn't say god um, that wouldn't be politically correct. Uh, but yeah, everything that's said to exist has been remembered by the past. This is what existence
2: means. It's great.
0: Do you have a imaginative challenge for me I today? I do,
2: I do.
1: And I thought, having given you some good story uh, challenge, which you've done some great, great work on but we kind of expect that of a natural storyteller and a professional writer um so i'm going to give you an argument uh, a fairly classical rhetorical argument to make you can come down on one side or the other but as with all good uh rhetorical positions you're going to need some sort of defense explanation some mechanism of of convincing us. Here's the scenario. A psychologist, you can make her a psychiatrist if you like, is marooned on a desert island or in a state of extreme wilderness. She's marooned alone. Now, the question for you to decide is Does her professional training as a psychologist or <laughs> psychiatrist give her an especial advantage or does it especially disadvantage her? One way or the other. We live in the digital era, so you're going zero or one. All right. And then, of course, we want to hear, I mean, either way you go there, you are going to be suggesting some implications for how we think of, of that profession. Let's just say the psychological profession at large, uh, because we won't just take it as advantage or disadvantage.
2: There's going to be some ramifications from your the position you take. Okay,
0: it is. Sorry for the pause. I was uh, making a quick note. No, All that's right. cool. Yeah, right. yep, got got it. Good to go. Um, so we hinted at it recently, but uh, what would you like to talk about today?
1: Well, we we got into uh, the, the subject of architecture. And it's something we have touched on at various points in our now closing in on 150 episodes. We're not quite there yet, but it's, it's quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we both enjoy talking and thinking about architecture. It's an important part of, of our larger notions of structure and design and um, But I wanted to to get us rolling in that, because I think that um, you mentioned a a book that that we both love, and I think a lot of people know about, uh, Gaston Bachelard's The Poetics of Space. certainly not the only book that he wrote, but it's his most famous, and I think it's his most loved book. Um, You also mentioned a very interesting book, which I've gotten a hold of, called In Praise of Shadows, uh, we've talked about Robert Irwin in the past. There are some really interesting um, architect writers, if you like, I think, or people who were very articulate about what they were doing. John Lautner, who was Frank Lloyd Wright's protege, is is one person. Um, there are a lot of connections with other art forms of, of music. For instance, Harold Budd is an ambient uh, the late Harold Budd was, uh, he did a lot of, of interesting work. Uh, some great collaborations with Brian Eno. The Room is a, is a, an album that I think is remarkable. And the idea of a room is fascinating. Uh, at some point, I've, I've always wanted to ask what you think of the novel House of Leaves. Um, but my first question, going back to this idea that that architecture was extremely important to the notion of modern and the modernist movement. Before literature, before uh, music, before even the enormous revolution in in painting and the visual arts and the rise of the cinema, the idea of film as a medium and the, the and photography as a fine art. Architecture was, was just, you know, partially because it's so visible by, by definition. And it's also something that people move in and out of. And it defines public and private spaces. Major, major idea. And it was obvious to people from, say, the 1880s up through the end of World War One it would have been unquestioned by the intellects, the cultured people, the tastemakers of, of that time, that architecture is the fundamental expression of, of zeitgeist, you know? And we have many examples of that zeitgeist in transition through those years. So my first question to you, uh, and then I have three quotations that I want to run past you uh, because I really loved when we did that. You're just hearing them out of the blue and kind of having to feel them and connect them. And what you did when in our earlier episodes was such a beautiful sort of switchboard connection of things that I saw whole new shapes and patterns take shape. But my first question is just generally, do you think there is an architectural zeitgeist today anywhere i mean let's think of america for i mean we we could look worldwide we could look in japan uh your other podcast agitator looks at japanese culture you've uh we could look at europe we could look at dubai we could look anywhere you want but maybe the american focus of Just anything. And I would go even further and say, then, is there any kind of design? You know, you could even move beyond that if you like. But with some major architectural ideas in mind that really do seem to capture an era in some way or capture a conflict in era change. Is there anything that comes to mind about today and I hope my inflection doesn't give my uh, point away.
0: Nothing positive. There are things, okay. but none of them are, none of them are good. A podcaster by the name of Jack Mason, who does a show called the perfume nationalist in which he pairs a specific perfume with a piece of media. Great show. One of my favorite shows. I've been on it three times now. He is uh semi-known for articulating the idea of the quote unquote neoliberal door and <laughs> <laughs> once you see the neoliberal door it's another band you you can't unsee the neoliberal door you see this on uh buildings <clears throat> homes houses that have been built in the past 10 years there's a tendency to have these solid ebony black doors with three horizontal very thin horizontal uh reflective surfaces on the door um it's something that is what uh oh who was it who's it was it baudrillard's concept of the hyperreal Yes. Baudrillard talked about the hyperreal.
1: Well, and, and Echo, Umberto, both of them did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think that a lot of architectural forms in 2023 that are popular and that have been uh, sort of copied and copied and copied can all get into this area of the hyper-real, where there are signifiers on their beings that don't mean anything uh intrinsically but that have become you know simulacra simulacra to the point that they're it's nonsensical it's putting three horizontal glass stripes opaque glass stripes on a black door and calling that a style um so i think that the the trends in american architecture right now go towards uh uselessness which everything doesn't have to have a use i don't want that to be the takeaway from what i'm saying but a kind of cheap uh marble countertop stainless steel refrigerator interior and a mcmansion blueprint simulacra exterior with these little titchy touches of nonsense that make no sense for I can. By the way, if you want to make this into an architecture podcast, we can do that because because I, I can talk about this for forever. But um, but my short answer is no, personally, personally. And these were our houses that were built in the 80s and 90s. Personally, I saw, and some of them in the 70s, I saw some very impressive domestic architecture in Taos when I was there. Um, some very interesting um, sort of exterior perimeter uh, uh, adobe gates that had some very interesting almost phallic uh, arches to them I thought those were very interesting I thought that the the neighborhood that Rios and I were staying at where our Airbnb was located had some some very interesting you know sort of uh glass mixed with adobe uh sort of sprawling one level uh sunken houses built off of hills sort of split level type joints you know i'm talking about um but when you see houses going up in neighborhoods like the house that's being built across the way no no there's nothing Yeah,
2: that's very,
1: you know, my strong uh, sense of things. And a lot of, you know, what you were just describing there in terms of what evolution or kind of evolution out of control of layers and layers and layers of the hyper real upon uh, the ersatz is a great word.
0: Ersatz is great. Yeah. It yeah.
1: reminds me very much of, you know, Vegas is is kind of the, the mecca for this and a great book, uh, which is uh it, it had a huge effect on the architectural community and is one of those books that rippled out to affect artists and thinkers and writers much more broadly, is Learning from Las Vegas, which was mm. published in the 1970s. But it, it's it was one of the the, the critical books of establishing this notion of any example of architecture as being a text you know a text that could be interpreted and read and therefore also edited as in censored as in added on to in in increasing uh you know sometimes very superficial sort of ways another thing i was thinking about with your response there is uh, you know, kind of this, this ongoing sense of and exhaustion, which we've talked about, of just kind of running out of ideas, rebooting everything, recasting everything. Have you heard about this television show, Hello Tomorrow? It's on Apple TV, and it has uh, some, it has Billy Crudup. In the in the lead, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and Hank Azaria from the uh, the Simpsons.
0: It's I like it, both those actors, uh, by the way.
1: Yeah, it it looks very. Uh, its premise is set. I don't. It has some sort of dark overtones to it as it develops, but it's kind of a comedy set in a fantasy sort of nineteen fifties American world of you know when the visions of space. Packs and, you know, uh, personal helicopters and this kind of uh, William Gibson imagined future that never happens sort of thing Um, with a a typical sort of salesperson selling uh, timeshares on the moon. So it's got a weird kind of 50s throwback to the futures of of the Space Needle all that kind of thing. But it struck me that the whole thing is, I don't know if it's going to be interesting to watch as a series, but it's incredibly designed. It's, it's really buying into all of that wonderful, you know, bright colored toasters and refrigerators from the 50s and 60s. And it, almost if you remove that element, that's the leading uh, actor in the whole thing is really the design. And I don't know if there's anything that you could put into that place for today. I, I think that it's a complete, um, well, it's as complete a vacuum as it could be. I don't believe that is possible. And obviously, we're not walking around in thin air. But it is weird how that has, has just vanished. Um,
0: Isn't it strange as well, bringing up the brightly covered uh, colored appliances of the 50s, I remember I once went to Graceland with my mother and seeing the jungle room blew my mind. Have you ever been to the jungle room in Graceland? Yes.
1: God, yeah. I haven't thought of that in a long time.
0: That green shag and you walk down those stairs into Elvis's basement and there are those yellow paneled walls with, you know, cathode ray tube TVs put into the wall as you walk down. I don't know what the hell you're supposed to be watching as you're walking down the stairs, but they're there all the same. But this idea of color, yellow, green, blue, a bright red toaster, a bright pink fridge, whatever you want to think color, but it's color in, in your home, your home is where color is. Fast forward to 2023. Our homes are scrubbed of color. Everything is supposed to be gray, laminate. Uh, uh, the mar- even the marble looks gray. Even though marble, you'll know, like marble has is supposed to have that kind of greenish tint to it a little bit, but it doesn't seem like any marble countertops have that anymore. Every apartment and home looks like American Psycho. Looks like Patrick Bateman's apartment. Mm. Scrubbed of color. Where is the color gone? It's in our phones and on our screens.
2: Interesting.
0: It's an interesting question. Where is the color gone? So it's been sucked from our, you remember the movie Pleasantville? Yeah. Which had a very fun concept. It was a 1950s sort of drama where everything's black and white. And this town uh experiences a sexual liberation because all of a sudden color is introduced it's
1: well in in a without i i don't know if this hello tomorrow has as interesting a premise finally as as that as pleasantville did um but it it certainly builds on that that aesthetic and also uh that historical mystique of of what you're talking about there and it it reinforces the fact that we don't have anything like that going on today
0: i are i would, we are we living in a reverse pleasantville
1: well i think that's kind of uh a way to think of it actually um uh-huh. i mean it's yes i think and i think that's an interesting way to think about Uh, how nostalgia has changed and what nostalgia is like today Mm -hmm. at that level. Um, I can see what you're saying very, very clearly in terms of cars because-
0: Yes, I've seen, have you seen the new, the 2023, like uh, the Toyota hatchbacks that have that black plastic trim along their bumper? Yeah. It looks- Every year, I think cars can't get uglier, <laughs> and they just keep getting uglier to the point where if you see something like a 2022 uh Charger, it's not; it has nothing on early. Like uh, my, a buddy of mine had uh, like an 80s—I can't remember the exact year—but a Charger from the 80s, bright orange, and no, he didn't have a Charger; he had a Challenger. So you know, the Chargers silly like cousin right um but his car and sitting in his car there were no seat belts in the car right because it was from an earlier time and the sound of the engine the uh people watch asmr videos where hot women will whisper sweet nothings in your ear on youtube i want an asmr challenge of of, of a, of a, of a manual transmission, 83 challenger, you know, which is really awesome. but like you put that up against uh, today's challenger and today's challenger looks stupid by comparison, but yes. even that challenger looks, and I'm not one to talk. I drive a, a Chevy Trax. There's nothing sexy about what I drive, but, but every car looks like this
1: well I had a 1970. Dodge charger a white one
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I seriously you know I obviously survived but I took the very famous hairpin corner on the Salinas River Road I was coming home from my girlfriend's house and I was really wound up because I gotten into a fight with her father
3: mm-hmm. he was
1: fireman and he hated me and he was home he, he was good when he was living at the fire station two weeks on two weeks off he was home and we had this fight fist fight in the in the driveway and i was really pumped up driving home and also you know a little altered and i <laughs> drove through an all-state you're in good hands with all-state billboard into an asparagus field and it was I I got out before you know the but the car was finished and it was it was terrible, but on the sudden have a Google on and this it's just beautiful to say everybody who says these words will feel better, an Auburn boat tail speedster, I mean. I feel better just saying that, but when you look at it, it's just the most beautiful design of car. Yeah, that's a and good looking car. I think that uh, in every way we're looking at a very dismal time of, well, it's, we're, our whole world is like a, a Raoul Dahl story that's been, you know, edited.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Rubbed. But, uh, Okay, well, on the larger subject of kind of architecture, but sort of in a metaphorical sort of way. And the the idea of space, you know, space, I wanted to throw three quotations out to you. Um, Going back to my Vienna thing, which got me looking into that, was uh, a writer named um, Adolf Polgar, who wrote for what were called then feuilletons. Do you know that word, the French word of feuilletons? I've never heard it before. Well, it comes up in Orwell in uh, 1984, but it's also mentioned in Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game, which I I think is one of my favorite novels. The
0: Glass Bead Game is a, everybody should read The Glass Bead Game. So I have well, heard the term, then I just didn't remember it.
1: It is from the and because in the glass bead game, the the era is called the age of the feuilleton, right. and it's it's kind of a, I mean, it, it referred to a, a particular aspect of of newspapers at the time, but it, you could say I think pull that out, and that has kind of become what all the media is. Um. Right sort of the New York Post social media smear out into that. But Polgar was was a very important part of the the modernist movement in Vienna. And one of his quotations, which I think is very interesting because it's so suggestive, and I don't know what it means, so I'm going to ask you. In the boxes, the
2: emptiness became afraid of itself. I don't know what that means,
1: but I think that's some sort of comment upon the nature of uh, space, shelter, the organization of of refuge. But here's a compliment piece from, from Gaston Bachelard. If I were asked to name the chief benefit of the house, I should say that the house shelters daydreaming. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a moment in contrast to well, getting a roof over your head, you know, and, and shelter from the mm-hmm. storm and all those things. Notice how those two those quotations put the idea of what architecture house, and room as spatial constructs.
2: What that's doing, what that's addressing.
0: In empty space, the box begins to what?
1: Inside the boxes, the emptiness becomes
2: afraid of itself. I think that sounds like something Kafka would say.
0: Well, I think so, too. And I think that the distinction between those two quotes, the immediate distinction is between boxes and houses. And then I think the further on thought from that is what do we live in right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think that the former quote has a really good point, which is
2: that The way that you punish
0: prisoners worse than putting them to death, torture, what have you, is by putting them in solitary confinement. You put them in a box. I think they call it the hole, but I could see them calling it the box as well. If you put something in the box, that emptiness starts to compound on itself. I think Bachelard's quote is suggesting that a house, the design of a house... The geometry of a house is facilitating daydreaming in a way that empty space by itself, four walls, like you said, a roof over your head, does not. And I wonder what that is.
1: Okay. Look, oh, there's some interesting things there. I, I think that uh tonally. Bachelard, to me, is suggesting, as you say, a very positive view of daydreaming and encouraging, nurturing that, in a sense, really literally nurturing it. Whereas Holgar's idea is that the the emptiness is actually quite frightening
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and something to be avoided, that the daydreaming possibility or the freedom to to expand like a gas, daydreaming in a a room, the purpose of a house is good. Whereas from the Polgar view, that's very much not good. I like the idea of inside the boxes, you know, ticking the boxes in terms of personal identity issues, trying to break outside the box or create lots of new boxes. We're still not getting away from emptiness. There's still that that needs to be shaped and spatialized. Mm -hmm. How do you think those two ideas, whether however metaphorically or not, they seem to relate to architecture and the organization of space. How do you see that connecting possibly with social media and some of the things that we've Mm -hmm. talked about? you know because social media breaks us out of our box you know we're not <laughs> in our house anymore we're not just limited to our house mm-hmm. you know um yeah. it uh <laughs> i was watching this the the movie beast with uh Idris Elba and oh my
0: god why why would you do that
1: yeah i, I well yeah uh what was really interesting about it was the two little girls, his daughters, managed to make all of the comments about, you know, that young people make about, we don't have Wi-Fi, you know, and that kind of thing. It was just like so media dependent. But do you, how, how is social media influencing our sense of architecture in a bachelard sense?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked.
2: So, I think that the first,
0: the most important way to frame this is by, first of all, separating these two quotes, and then we can talk about social media, right? So, if you look at a kind of dead, simulacra, hyperreal, real, frumpy, uh, box, McMansion house, that's in the Polgar sense of the word when there's no personality behind the structure that you're in, no human, uh, then it is in fact, just a box. And what a box will do is it will uh, reflect and, and, and distort in very strange ways, the things that you're thinking back to yourself. So you'll go crazy. If you think of like, if you think of an insane asylum, and it's, it's white walls, it's padded white walls, that makes the insane person more insane by virtue of its lack of personality. A house, on the other hand, which I'm distinguishing here from a box, <laughs> was built by an architect with a vision. And when you do that, when you when you build a house that has been designed by a person to their specifications, you are uh, the same way people in Papua New Guinea take an excavator apart and put it back together to put themselves into it. That same process is going on with the builder and the architect. And it's imbuing it with an alchemical sense of of a person who's there. So you cease to live inside of a box and you start living inside of a, of a person who had thoughts and opinions and dreams and things like that so living in a house becomes a conversation rather than a monologue Mm -hmm. you see what i mean yeah so um the way that relates to social media i would have to take just a slight detour but not a huge one into early internet and the concept of the geo cities website which i'm sure you remember they were very ugly had a lot of Uh, sparkling uh, stars and, you know, uh, not very attractive to look at, but the GeoCities website, uh, the people who invented GeoCities had this concept of everybody being able to own their own land in the internet space, right? So they had a very libertarian idea of how the internet should work. And the ugliness of the GeoCities was built into the individuality, Because not everybody who goes to create a website is going to be a perfect web designer. That all got subsumed into the web industrial complex, which led to sites like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and these very streamlined, I would call them boxes, (laughs) that create the same effect as the box house dichotomy in physical architectural space. Right. So social media, though it purports to be uh, an ability to connect with other people. Instead, to my mind, you are, in fact, in a box and you're experiencing the emptiness of that box and that box is reflecting all these things back on you in order for you to really get outside of your head, the space, whether digital or physical has to fundamentally be intentionally different from you. It has to become a conversation. The space you have to be in has to become a conversation, whether that's through people who've lived in the space before you or uh, the architect who built it, the various sundry things that go wrong, right? It's interesting to think about a thing in a house going wrong, even though everything can, can be going right up here. A box that you live in becomes a a constantly reflecting uh, hall of mirrors type scenario where you are no matter how many people you talk to you're still inside your own head, and that's what I think social media is.
1: That's fascinating. You know, some of the that that idea of the conversation, and that's such a lovely sort of down to earth word, that really, to me, comes f- forward very strongly in the mid-century modernist American architects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that as a movement away from the yeah. Bauhaus European aesthetic. I, I don't see that that any of the exciting sort of tinker toy weirdness of of Asia, whether it be Tokyo or Seoul or Shanghai or uh, into the Middle East, some of these crazy buildings, Kuala Lumpur in, in Malaysia. None of those statements, none of the those from the giant uh, civic and corporate buildings down to the residential things has that sense of conversation quite yeah, like the right. America of the mid-century. That was a right. real value and the assumption was that people, even if they weren't architecturally articulate, they could intuitively embrace that idea and have a conversation within mm-hmm. those spaces. And I wonder if, I, I think that that was, uh, you know, an outgrowth of, of, of connection and, and uh, with some of the aesthetics that Bachelard was picking up on, the psychology of space that everyone could relate to, even if they weren't educated to having the vocabulary for that. They didn't need it. They needed to intuitively respond to it, to light and texture and sound and shape and line and feng shui, you know?
0: Yeah. There's a graphic novel by Alan Moore called From Hell. Are you familiar with From Hell? Yeah. It's, uh, it was illustrated by Eddie Campbell. And it was turned into a decent film with Johnny Depp. It's about Jack the Ripper. It's based in, you know, Victorian London. But the graphic novel is a masterpiece of psychogeography because there's a point where uh, the, the physician surgeon who in Alan Moore's mind uh, was definitely Jack the Ripper is taking a tour of London in his carriage and he's telling his hapless, deformed servant about all of the occult significance of the buildings that surround them. It's really interesting, and when he gets to Hawksmoor Chapel in a uh... oh shit, help me out here where Where did the Jack the Ripper murders take place in London? What was the name of that?
1: uh not Whitechapel Whitechapel,
0: yes, Whitechapel, yes, no, you're right, yeah, yeah of course. Um, but the, 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 the church, he says, you know, if you look at the street layout here, how it all goes to this chapel and the spire comes up, he has this great monologue that I can't recall from memory, but how that is meant to be an imposition on the people of London, right? They're supposed to see this. It's supposed to push. It's supposed to be aggressive. I put that in my second novel. Low down death, right? Easy. I have characters who are driving around this town and they say to each other, like, you know, how do you feel when all the architecture around you is telling you to go fuck yourself, right? Like, it's all, it's all put, it's all meant to, it's the boot stomping on a human head type thing. So I bring that up to connect to what you're talking about, about these, these mega structures in Shanghai or uh, Dubai or what have you. I was listening to a person talk about their trip to Shanghai and they said, what was so strange about being in Shanghai, as opposed to being in a city like New York, where in New York, you're surrounded by skyscrapers. So you're kind of in this rat's maze where when you look up, you'll see these tall buildings, but you don't ever get the scope of it. And what he said, what was so disconcerting about Shanghai is that those really tall buildings are actually spread out. So (laughs) if you're going on a walk, You're constantly in a a, a, a normal neighborhood with like a colossus behemoth of a building lingering in the smog just out of view, right? Like something that's always watching you.
1: They do have that. Like when, I mean, the thing that's interesting about, you know, cities like Shanghai is that they're changing minute to minute because the Chinese can do things at just unbelievable speed. Uh, Because when they were, that they started with sort of the tinker toy Jetson stuff of Pudan, that was kind of isolated across the river. Uh, And immediately looking out at it was the old, the Bund, the, the French colonial architecture thing and a kind of elegant, almost Parisian strip or and it was very because there was a, an ideal viewing distance but they they kind of constantly shift in shape because they're always building new things so it's Manhattan hasn't changed shape like that the skyline you know yeah. no yeah. other city other in there there's Chinese cities do that faster than anywhere else it's very mm-hmm it's like that sci-fi movie dark
0: city remember that i love that movie yeah yeah it's so good and so creepy and so scary it was lovely that was an australian
1: uh he's an australian director um Mm -hmm. and i thought it was a really good premise of a city changing shape at night that the architecture is alive and moving
4: Mm yeah
0: yeah it's getting into like china medieval territory there too he has well, that. A lot of
1: others have, have embraced that idea of, mm-hmm. of, of a kind of animate building structures, or you know, I mean, it's an extension of you take on the dreams of the ones who slept there. Idea of of hotel rooms mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, work mm-hmm. that out to the city takes on the dreams of the dreamers and, and changes shape.
0: Right, 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 and I think that. Um, You know, just to to kind of bring it, you know, back from Shanghai and from from London and all this, you know, when I did go to uh, Taos, I I did actually feel a kind of sense of the architecture, and I kind of wonder if you know these manors that I was looking at on these hills overlooking the the high desert of Taos. Uh, weren't heavily influenced by the Pueblos that had been there for thousands and thousands of years. And if there wasn't something to that, some kind of built up history that made that that kind of thing work, to say that I wonder if modern American cities aren't suffering from a kind of ahistorical <laughs> uh, 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 hypermodernism that that doesn't have any of that kind of conversational feel that some of these other buildings might have. Because I did, and I'm sorry if I'm going in too many directions at once here, but when I did spend a month in Seoul, even though it is very modern and it's been rebuilt since the 1950s for obvious reasons, uh, I did feel a kind of personality in those buildings and the hanging wires and the little shops and the people on motorbikes, which aren't part of the architecture, but they kind of also are.
3: That's
2: interesting. I um,
1: I think that that's something that that uh, I think we could we could look into further, and I think we could bring that back around into sort of a literary or art frame generally of of looking at how cities, in particular, inform art movements of, of various different times. And I I think that while we don't see a a, a kind of style. Uh, paradigm happening now Um, that's also because I don't think we see any cities that are really artist friendly that there's a kind of culture movement going on but you did make me think that this could all be connected within this episode back to the issues of the Puffin censorship of Raoul Dahl because it can yeah it can you know, here we have, I mean, the question that you started with is how long will this trend of, of wokeness cast its spell if, if we put that frame on it? Let's just say, let's just accept that idea for a moment of looking at things that way. And that's a question for any social movement, any zeitgeist. How long will that be in fashion, so to speak? And one way of, of making things really linger and have an impact longer term is architecturally. You know, wow. architects as yes. artists, they don't they don't they have, you know, for any writer who's discouraged about things who don't go ahead talk to an an architect
3: Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. have
1: so many plans and dreams and great ideas that don't go ahead they eat disappointment you know for breakfast all the time but when you do get a hit when you do get something over it's really there in the world in a way that only few writers can really you know And you think of the great achievements, particularly, say, of the 19th century and landscape architecture would be Central Park, Prospect Park in New York, Hyde Park, Mm -hmm. the botanical gardens throughout the British Empire, Um, the great train stations, for God's sake, you know, like this train station in even a city like Cincinnati, you know, magical to be able to create that.
0: I think the New York subway is beautiful.
1: Well, I think I, I would agree. I would think, I think the great subways of the world, you know, the Paris underground, the London tube, the New York, Chicago, Chicago's
0: L train. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, those are magical things and mm-hmm. they're great idea. They're great models of flux and uh, the movement of, of energy, like a, mm-hmm. like, in a body. Mm-hmm. you know, got to keep the people moving. And it's also like the mX missile thing of like well you never quite know where it will be, and there's a quantum uncertainty. you can't predict the speed and the location at once. I'd love I think subways are fast, yeah yeah, I think yeah. and I, talk about
0: I think and, and and conversely to how much I love Seoul, Soul's underground, Soul's tube doesn't have what New York or Chicago or Paris or London have, because this is the rare time that David can say that, you know, I've been to all those, (laughs) all those different various undergrounds. And, uh, I think, I think London was my favorite riding the train on London because you see so many, it's so fascinating to go to a country and get on its tube and just pass residential areas and places that people just kind of live. And you think to yourself, God, people just live here and have lived here forever. It's really cool. And so with soul, that there are points where you go above ground and you see the city and whatever. But there's something very uh well neoliberal for lack of a better term about how clean everything is and how how crisp the automated voice is that tells you you know the, like you cut you want a uh, when you're on a tube you want the voice to come crackling out of a speaker box you know some british woman's voice telling you like the train will arrive at blah 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 station da, 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 and you kind of can't hear it and you have to ask somebody like what what did she just say they're like oh um anyway i don't know got on a rant about subways there but i have had some really magical times uh in brooklyn at 3 a.m just kind of sitting waiting for a train with nobody else around
1: yeah or you and those really far flung like uh, you know to the edge of brooklyn like going out to coney island or right. you know, the other way, going up through Harlem, across to the Bronx. Yeah. I was dating yeah. this Russian girl who lived in – she worked at Howard, – when, when Howard Johnson's was still around, they had a Hojo's in Times Square. That's where I met her. And she lived up in the Bronx. And to go on, you know, the like that elevated line when you shoot past Columbia and up through Harlem on a night – where there's a moon out just after though the rain has cleared away. I remember that it was just so eerie, uh, fabulous. I think subways are, are, and I love yeah. the yeah. signs that the Japanese have in, like in Tokyo, the, like these crazy, you know, signs that you think, what does that mean? And forget right. it, it's non-language. They're purely, you know, icon, iconography. They're, but you, you can't work out what in the hell is, is they're very strange, public, dynamic architectural spaces. And uh, you made me think: have you read John Dos Passos? No. I really would love it if he came back. I don't, he's a really good writer. He, he captured something of an American spirit of the time, uh, the 30, 20s and 30s, 20s, 30s. Manhattan transfer, the USA to Trilogy. But he has a moment of, of talking about the 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 subway, the New York subway, the first really hot summer day. And that going down into the dark, but that moment, that, that smell, that mm. such smell of uh, pantyhose, Pantyhose, yeast infection, and jackhammer dust.
3: Yeah, you know, that
1: hits you. It's great. It's great really mingling with people, and I yet I suggest that what 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 you get the hang of is it is a system that you feel like you're can, you can kind of master and be you can be in control of yourself within this giant pinball machine that could be very right. able-
0: Right, because you feel the most agency when you're around forces that are out of your control. People who are into S&M know this. Yeah. When you're tied up, that's the most you that you can be. And <laughs> when you're... <laughs> that's a
1: lovely connection. That's
0: and when, lovely and connection. when you're stuck in a subway smelling other people's BO and farts and booze and whatever else you you suddenly have the freedom to be yourself not a hard concept but it's but it's uh, a lot of people have trouble getting on board with that they want a more pristine austere uh, uh clinical scrubbed way to live why would you want Why would you want your house to be like that? Why would you want the place that you go to to be? Why would you want to live in a house that nobody else has ever lived in?
1: That's a good question. I I mean, I think that um, it's sort of the virgin ethic, that new car smell question. Uh A lot of things there, I mean. There are people who have very clear answers to that. And I can understand it. I mean, particularly when you move, like as I did when I moved into this place, it had been vacant for almost a year. And there was an awful lot to clean up. And you also mm-hmm. know when you start getting down to that grit level, that there's there's stuff you're never going to get.
0: Oh, look, there are people who lived in this house who are hoarders. Yeah. And uh, they put down a new floor here. They did their best. But there was a lingering smell that Rios and I have done our best. And if, but if we don't keep up with things and I've washed the baseboards, I've done crazy cleaning shit to try to get this lingering smell out. But as soon as the candles stop burning, a little bit of that shit creeps back in.
1: Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, and it, mm-hmm. it and it's granular, you know, it yeah. really does get into it, it. It's not simply atmospheric; it's atmospheric because it's extremely mm-hmm. material, and it's mm-hmm. everywhere, and there's nothing you can do. And then, of course, that also reflects on how you think about your own body, because that's true of, yeah. you know, it's exactly mm-hmm. the body is. uh is a kind of
0: house, you know. Why do people have the best sex of their lives in hotel rooms? Like, why do married couples have such good sex in hotel rooms?
1: I've always enjoyed hotel rooms exactly for that reason. One crucial, well, there have been like three or four relationships, but there was one, the major, major relationship after my main divorce my girlfriend and I prided ourselves on rock and roll destruction of Mm -hmm. hotel rooms. Not really. We didn't really do that much damage, but my God, did we make ourselves feel at home because Mm -hmm. we can make yourself feel completely at home and Mm -hmm. you don't have to clean up.
0: You don't have to clean up, but other people also haven't had to clean up. So there's stuff everywhere. If you, you and her weren't noticing that
1: slept there or have humped there, you know.
0: Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You might you might you might have come there. Hundreds of people have come there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's a thing, it's a texture yeah. to the air. It's energizing
1: amplification. It's like a lens.
0: Yeah. Doesn't matter how many times they wash the sheets or clean the walls or scrub the shower, doesn't matter. We all know what's going on. And there's, there's a line to this too. Cause you don't want to go to a hotel that's too skeevy where you can kind of like see the nastiness, but you want to feel the nastiness. Some of the best sex I ever had was in a hard rock hotel in Vegas. It was a time that I visited before we hung out. I want to say 2012, we hung out after that, right? It wasn't 2012. It wasn't that long ago that you and I hung out there,
1: and it doesn't seem like. But I that that that's possible. I, I arrived here then, so that's possible.
0: It's, why it's possible. It's possible. Well, anyway, Uh, you know, we go to the Hard Rock Hotel. People are smoking in it. Smoking's a big thing too, right? Like when you're indoors and people are smoking cigarettes, it's creating this kind of uh, uh culture in the in the air that you're that you're kind Absolutely. of existing it changes
4: in
1: changes the human culture
0: it does and we got there and we showed up and there were these sheets that had guitars on them and a and a shower that was matte black and we were just like oh let's fucking it, it was almost like we weren't the ones who were deciding to have sex it was like the room was having sex having (laughs) it was like the room was making the decision to have sex for us you know i I like that
1: i like that i think that's a beautiful idea yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. well you're in the in the box the emptiness becomes afraid of itself and needs to do something so it gets more and more energetic and pretty soon it starts bouncing off the walls and there's this orgasm of reaction.
0: Yeah. 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 It's that, or, I mean, I would go the other, I I would say it's closer to a house, right? Like it's, 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 well, the way that the, the Polgar quote was presented to me made it seem much more sterile, right? Like much more of this kind of new, fresh, clean linen uh, you know, uh, this is your special space that's made just for you. When you make a special space for people that's made just for them, you're taking human beings out of a very natural lineage where nothing has ever been for us. Even for the people who first made it because it's been so gradual, you know? Mm. So I think that, uh, in 2023, whether it's social media or physical space, when all of that has been just completely divested of its heritage, it leaves us with a very strange ambient anxiety that we can't get rid of.
1: I think it ties into our uh, episodes where we're dealing with the question of embodiment, you Mm -hmm. know, a conflict between, classic looks of bodies and almost you know superhero muscles on men amazing you know boobs and butts on women comic bookness and then a complete gender neutral you know mm-hmm. non binary no no attractive features at all in any kind of obvious yeah way. yeah and then of course artificial intelligence and the sense of moving outside the body into cyberspace and more of a virtual reality. We can't decide where we're living, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 When, where we really want to live is in a place that is a little ugly. It's a bit lived in. As soon as you go into a space like that, you can, you can feel it versus a virtual reality. Like, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I occasionally look at porn, right. And I'll scroll and sometimes I will just not find anything that looks good at all because it all looks too clean. You know, everything looks too crisp and, and it's like an HD shot of like a dick going into a pussy and you're like, okay, that's a thing, I guess. But it's all very medical and mechanical Right. And then, you know, you might find a video that's a bit grainier and has a bit more life to it. But all these things work on these uh, reverse polarities of, you know, the more the the more convenient, easy, clean, uh, sinless something becomes, the less attractive it is. It also could just be me. I just could like that kind of shit. Maybe there are some people who walk into a perfectly crisp, brand new hotel room, never been lived in by anybody else. And they feel at home in that that's possible. They might be aliens, but for me, I've got to have my shit lived. I felt so at home when Rios and I stayed at an Airbnb in Bath, England, right? Ancient building. Ain't Back to the Romans, ancient, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I got this sense of depth to the space that we were in that was so deeper than any house, uh, by virtue of being an American, that I had ever lived in. You know? So I got that in Paris. I got that in Montpellier. I got that in Seoul. I got that in London. I mean... There's something to it, history, history through uh, uh, architecture that has been uh, lived in and died in by other humans.
1: Yeah, well, I think the texture and the layering and, you know, it's it's we were talking about last time about, you know, barbecues and coffee urns that get used and have that sort of flavoring chili pots,
4: Mm -hmm. you know. People mm-hmm. who
1: are hardcore chili beggars that I know, you know, they really they they need that sort of flavor yeah. into and with, the crust, yeah, and with percussion instruments, you know, like particular hang drums or you know metal drums or any really any all instruments that I know, all acoustical instruments, they the whole thing is something that is really worn in, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't want something shoes brand new. Yeah, that's a good example. Well, that could be really pain. You know, it used to be, uh, and it still is with certain kinds of shoes that you you better not uh like like hiking shoes, like you really need to wear those in over time before you go on a big trek or something. Because if you're out trekking seriously and they're brand new, well, you've got a problem,
3: mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good place to, to put a pin in that discussion. This has been one of my favorite ones.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm wanting to find out just... about our marooned yeah. psychologist. And I yeah. just want to just r- remind you that you're under no uh, puffin books. Uh, oh, good. Okay. Sanitizing her. She can have a really hot tits and a really great you can do anything you want she could be you know you can bring her to life in any way you don't have to neutralize our abandoned psychologist.
0: yeah yeah so the um sorry i just trying to re- read my writing here um so the first question, of course, uh, that you asked was, does does her being a psychologist give her any advantages on a deserted island? And I wrote, in all caps, disadvantage with an explanation yeah, okay. point. That's, we wanted a clear um, direction. So the first note that I have that I will riff on is that uh, psychology is a profession that is dependent upon the the society in which it's built. So psychology is not something that uh, flows naturally from, you know, jungle people or or primitive people, if you will. It's something that once uh, certain layers of society have been sort of put down and people get to a certain level of comfort, then we can have psychology. So right off the bat, Her profession is not helping her uh, doing what she wants to do. The second thing is uh, um, this idea of navel gazing and diagnosis of trying to pinpoint or locate a problem and then provide a, a response to it. I think that she is going to come into a lot of spontaneous encounters on this deserted island that she needs to be able to think on her feet uh, in which she'll have to think on her feet and I think that her profession doesn't really hip her to that but the major uh you know outside of not having practical knowledge or what have you, this particular uh imaginative challenge reminded me of my own struggle with OCD, which is kind of a it's it's a mental illness that is sort of based around navel gazing and how when you have ocd and the kind of ocd that i have for for any new listeners is not like i wash my hands a bunch or anything like that it's it's catastrophic thinking that's placed in a context of you know uh, the world having to be structured in a certain way but when you have ocd and you spend days weeks, months, years of your life in this thing's grip. What you begin to realize is that you can't think your way out of it. You can't uh, Mm. intellectualize what you're
2: doing. And so if you really want to get away from it, you throw intellectual, philosophical,
0: diagnostic concerns to the wind. And you just have to kind of begin to act on impulse. And so for a person like a psychologist who, you know, in our imaginative frame, we don't know what her personal hangups are, but we know what her profession is. So we know how she's used to looking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at at the world and i think that from an ocd perspective you would realize very quickly that you have to throw all of that out the window and you have to focus on the very immediate problems that are facing you at that moment but i i i liked this particular challenge because it did make me think about you know kind of my own struggles with mental issues and the fact that uh the way out from them even as i'm saying them in words right now it isn't through words it's not through writing things down on a yellow legal pad it's through action and impulse and gut and reaction and uh i would hope that our uh I would hope our psychologist would, would figure that out before she died, but uh, the prognosis is not good.
1: I think that's absolutely fascinating. And didn't, I mean, it, 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 you, you, you took a, there were two forks and you, you, you took the fork that I thought you might, but the result of that was very, very, very different. And you, it's interesting because there is a real crossroads, you know, left or right. And one of the the rules of of labyrinth constructions is that that then multiplies the next time around. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Principle like computer bit, but you got to a really interesting point of you can't think your way out of it. That's the situation you said that she's in. And, Everyone understands that. And I love how that very simple phrase hides so many layers of meaning. And this is a point that I make repeatedly in my textbook on writing the imagination and cognition is that basic phrases do an enormous amount of freight carriage in in our life and we shouldn't take them for granted. Because that connects back to the bachelor thing of if the house, if its principal function is a shelter for daydreaming, he has a value about daydream and thought that is in direct conflict to what you end up proposing of really you, you gave us finally to conclude on the, the fundamental binary of thought versus action.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is, the I think, a way of looking at one of the great concerns, anxieties, and uncertainties of the modern era is thought, action. I mean, think Mm. of it.
3: We've created
1: a world of intellectual property. Yeah, right, right. Innovations, patent, you know, on and on and on, where this has been tremendously commodified. It may be completely ignored in terms of ideas and imagination as you and I often enjoy it and our listeners but there there's nonetheless a big market for certain kinds of thought so it becomes enormously pragmatic and and real in an architectural structural sense and yet there is that everyone knows what you mean when you say you can't think your way out of this one. You, you have to actually, I mean, think of, of dealing with drug addiction or any the of the major psychological yep. problems. Yep. You you can't just go, well, I recognize I've got a problem and that's nope. half the solution. <laughs> well, no, it's not. It's halfway to the next bar, you know, might as well just get in the car and get there faster, you know? Why not?
0: Yeah. No, I think that that is so true. I recently uh, edited a self-help book. And, uh, you know, the ethics of doing that keep me from from going into any specifics about the book itself. But were there little people in it? (laughs) 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 Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. But when I was reading it, this this fellow was, a, or is, I should say, he's an entrepreneur. And uh, I got a lot of value out of the book as I was editing it and, you know, kind of turning it into a thing that could be read by multiple people because the value that I got from it was I was like, oh, and this is going to sound like a diss, but I don't mean it this way. I thought this guy's a millionaire and he got there by not
2: thinking. He's not thinking about things.
0: And that made a light bulb go off over my head. Like, Oh my God. What are the areas of your life where you have been thinking you big dummy? What are you thinking about things so much for? (laughs) But there is that difference, Chris, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's, there are some things, and we're, we're doing a podcast, it's a conversation, it's all thought. But I think what Lost Explorers has been doing that's so interesting, especially with your tools and tips, is um putting forth this idea that there is some point where you have to stop talking and thinking and just act. And there's no Google
2: Translate for that. It's just an act. Yeah. Right?
1: I I I think there is help when you actually look at what that might mean. And the two ways I think of it, and and we uh have talked about this before, and, and tried to give some demonstrations, and you certainly have in, in imaginative challenges and in your journaling, is to make things physical, to make mm-hmm. make thought tactile in some way, handwriting and and taking notebooks seriously, doing drawing, and I'm going to get to that in a moment with a tool um dimensionalizing it that that's a that's a word that i use a lot and i try to dimensionalize my classroom experiences i use every medium i can my voice mm-hmm. my face uh my body gestures i use the boards the whiteboards in different ways i get uh the if there's if it's a technology classroom i use the that multimedia sort of aspect i have handouts i use everything that I possibly can. And when it's really at its perfect humming, mm. masterful efficiency, minute, every minute counts. If the students don't, don't, you know, it's just seamless. They just, they're in it. They're part of it. So they don't notice, oh, my God, he used every possible tool that could be used in that 75 minutes. They wouldn't even think that because they've been
2: part of it you know, and absolutely.
0: I think, I think, uh, I think that is a good, I think we should start to move into
2: our final segments here.
3: Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, it ties in directly with the tool, which is very simple conceptually, but really important. Uh, I found again, a painting that I'd done of a stretch of the Northern New Guinea coast, uh, which rises fairly suddenly from sea level up to a first range of mountains, But and it's entirely obscured by mist, which is not uh, unusual, that happens daily there. But beyond that, the, the, the mountain ranges keep going. And you wouldn't have any idea about that your first time on the beach, you know, unless other people had made that journey. And God knows what inspired them to do that. So I have this painting, which is really rich and textured, and I'm very sort of uh, pleased with the colors. Very simple landscape outline. I'm not a landscape painter. I'm not really a representational figurative artist at all. But then I have a photograph. Uh, of that same sort of coastline and I did not make the painting from the photograph okay they're two separate things I've just fascinated by this view because I know that there is a land of mystery that lies beyond the cloud cover and it's one of the strangest places on earth with more languages per square foot than anywhere in the world, more topographical changes. I know that intellectually, but the experience of looking at the presentations is very different. But the tool is simply this. Create a little portfolio for yourself where around your house you are juxtaposing a drawing of something and a photograph, just like off your phone or if you have a little Instamatic um, Polaroid type camera, that's what I use. Compare these things. Don't make your drawing from the photograph. Have them be, do them at different times so they're dimensionally different in time. And have a look at that over time. When you get about 20 examples of that, something peculiar will happen to your perception of it. And you'll realize the subject, the apparent subject in the photograph and the painting or drawing is never what it's, what's there.
4: Mm. You
1: are really doing something else. And I think you know what the real subject will end up seeming to you. And it's quite mm. strange. Because what you get is a fragmented mirror. You get a you get an absolutely kaleidoscopic dimensional presentation of your attention. Your the way you look at things. And I think it would be great to think of that from like an OCD point of view. Any sort of characteristic that is very personal to someone, they will see this developed very strongly. Mm-hmm. Nice. And here's my tip, which is also easily arranged. You don't have to read uh, some Gertrude Stein to do this. Take any page of writing and spend a few minutes eliminating all the spaces between, between the words. Print mm-hmm. it out. Let it sit for a day or so. So you leave a little bit of time between and come back and meditate on that full page an Mm a4 page so you need about a kind of wall of words of you know what 250 300 words Mm -hmm. you know something like that and really have that experience of knowing there is something to be read there it's kind of like puzzles crossword puzzles those things of what words pop out and what don't Mm -hmm. but i did it at different distances i now need uh I, i like at some point need reading glasses. So, I did it in sort of like a couple of different spaces, you know, from very close up to sort of add or remove, trying to read and also just letting it be a wall of, of mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You will experience an interesting shift in your perspective.
0: That's you awesome. Will. That's awesome. Have you been dreaming? Because, man, I can I tell you really quick before you yeah, do some of your stuff? So I have been having an ongoing serialized dream every time I close my eyes. It doesn't matter if I'm going to bed at night or closing my eyes for 30 minutes while Gus naps. I have I likened this uh, to my friend Kelby to people who live in very calorically dense scenarios versus those who don't. So people who eat all the time, they might get fat uh, and it's because their body is is taking in, or is taking in all these car- calories and uh, is not really seeing the value in the calories versus somebody who's starving and you could eat a single Lay's potato chip and the body's like, okay, we have to figure out how to make this work for us. So for, for me, that's how sleep is. And any little bit of sleep that I go into, I skip all the stages straight to REM, and I'm just back. I'm in dream world. (laughs) Wow. But I had a really uh, kind of disturbing one where I picked up, it's all in this kind of cyberpunk post-apocalyptic city with a bunch of steam and, you know, vents and neon and all this kind of stuff, but the part that stuck with me when I woke up was that at a certain point I found a baby on a sidewalk and I picked the baby up and the baby had the face of my stepfather and it, (laughs) and it, and the, and the baby stretched out in front of me, like it was made out of Play-Doh and I looked at its skin and I saw its diaper and around its diaper, it had all these claw marks like somebody had been Use, like using their fingernails to scratch the baby around its stomach. And then when I looked back up to its chest and showed mottled, sickly green and red around it. And then the baby's face, my stepfather's face began to cry and its jaw slowly also began to sink. And that's when I woke up. <laughs> oh,
1: wow. That was wild I and I, oh my, that's very. And so there's
0: a lot of things going on there, right? Like there's like, uh, you know, me and my stepdad have a really good relationship now, but obviously there's been a lot of tension with that. But I felt like there was a lot of, you know, infant anxiety in that dream. Like the fact that there was, that the, the diaper was so present, you know? yeah, We, oh, we don't yeah. think about the diaper, that every baby has a diaper. Gus has a diaper on every day, but the diaper becomes this kind of er symbol of you know of babiness and then like the scratches because sometimes gus will scratch himself and i don't consider myself to be an overly uh uh, anxious father but you know if i do see red marks on my kid i'm going to check out what's going on you know so it's like the dream was playing on that powerful You know, the dream was playing on that. These like, it wasn't that the baby was cut open and bleeding. No, it was just someone had scratched their belly and I was investigating what was going on. I I said, where did these scratch marks come from? And then the skin rash, right? You know, all these kind of Cronenbergian body horror things happening to a baby in front of me. It was all these anxieties that I have, like being poured into one one image essentially
1: have you had a lot of baby anxiety thematic because i would think that would be enormously powerful and live to air yeah all the time yeah and it's a question of just whether or not you can whether they survive the waking
0: you know no the answer is no i have a pretty good remembrance of this there have been Two dreams that I've had where I have lost Gus in some respect, crowded marketplace scenario. Uh, Once while he was in the backseat of the car, and then I look and then he's not there, you know? Um, So two have happened. He's almost two years old. So coming up on, you know, we're closing in on 700 days. Um,
2: but that was probably the
0: most overt baby dream. I th- I haven't dreamt a whole ton. I've gone through phases and you've known about all of them because I've talked about them on the show. If I'm not talking about my dreams on the show and you tell me your dream and I say, all right, everybody, good night. That means I haven't really been. Well, I
1: think yeah, and I I understand that. I think your your uh, sleep cycles and the demands have been such that you probably just you know really just crash out, and uh, you would certainly I think remember baby anxiety dreams. So when you have that, that's you know that's why you do you know yeah 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 yeah.
0: I don't I don't have a ton of anxiety in general though you know in in my in my life although. I do think the little bits that I have had perhaps over the two years of Gus being a flesh and blood being in front of me kind of culminated in that very strange. It's interesting that it was my stepdad's face too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I would need to know more than to sort of understand that aspect of it, but I take it that surprises you. It does.
0: Yeah. It does. We get along pretty well. We get along pretty well, but and yet, there he was. Yeah. Well,
1: I think that's a good way to think of it. I never, uh, and I have to remind my you, you there, no apologies for dreams. except them for for what they are. And uh, if someone you know appears in a certain way, that's that's just the way they. I for years had well, almost every dream I've had of my stepfather has had a an. A, some level of discomfort and distress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, something not malignant but but not good either. And I just right. let them go and say, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> I don't have to take right. responsibility for that. Right. But well, that's okay. Thank you uh, for sharing because I
0: yeah, to- sorry to hijack that. I well, I don't
1: to want to be always the, the folks. I think it's good to share that back. I had one interesting image, which I don't have the dream connected to it, but let's. It, we might as well think of it as an art exhibit of this frozen in time corporate presentation museum. So it's like a gallery of these scenes um, it wouldn't be clear whether these are sculptures made of say like a fiberglass kind of thing but they're ultra realistic and all the people are frozen it's like Mm -hmm. kind of like those robert longo drawings that we talked about Mm -hmm. last
3: time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and what the medium is they're all dimensional so they're they're actually they're not holograms and they're they're not uh you know, two-dimensional images in some way. They're they're three-dimensional, and they are, in that sense, mannequins. But as I was walking through this gallery and thinking, well, this is kind of an interesting time capsule of what sort of a caricature of corporate presentations, updated to sort of the Twitter, San Francisco, Silicon Valley sort of level. You know, there'd be service dogs and, you know, cappuccino machines and, you know, kind of a, a fanciness to it. But I noticed that all of the body parts were wrong. They didn't, you know, the heads weren't on backwards, but they none of it was 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 fitted properly. It had all been broken apart and then repurposed back together in a very curious way. And I love that sort of image. I thought I would love to be able to um to do that as a sort of an artist or a sculptor of some kind. But here's the dream that, and it built on. Last week's dream of my conflict with a couple, male and female, a couple at some sort of arts summer uh, camp kind of uh, thing like McDowell, McDowell Colony. I had a conflict with that. And in this case, I encountered a male figure again like this, but a bit more masculine. Powerfully built, bald, stylishly bald. I don't know if that's intentionally so, with an interesting sort of mustache. And he knew me better than I sort of felt I, I was known by him. And he seemed friendly on the surface, but there was this weedling sense of secondary levels of communication. And he kept gnawing at me about one sort of thing in terms of aging. And I thought it was really strange. He was talking about eye wrinkles Mm -hmm. and I thought Mm -hmm. to myself, wait a minute, I I got what he was saying because he was a bit younger. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not at all anxious about eye wrinkles, Mm -hmm. you know, male aging isn't like that. I could see why women, you know, would be concerned about that. And I've known women who, have, who are and you know, near my age. But if you're male, you're worrying about, like, if you're getting up at night to have a piss and about how hard your erections are and Owners all are sorts big, yeah. of other things. You know, there's, there's <laughs> no connection. And he kept pushing this eye wrinkle thing. And I really, I thought, this is really sort of creepy. But he was... I I must have been waking up because I was starting to connect him with that other dream, last week's dream Mm -hmm,
3: about mm -hmm.
1: this guy. And then he mentioned his name came up and his was Claggart. And that suddenly brought it all together. Claggart is the villain in Melville's Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who drives Billy Budd crazy to violence because he knows about Billy's stutter Mm -hmm. and the typical reading of that was you know really Manichaean good versus evil. Claggett can't stand Billy's innocence and natural vitality but when I was in grad school I I wrote one of my best essays ever in terms of literary criticism blowing that traditional theory open, and I said, look, this is uh, a very insidious, closeted homosexual who can't stand loving Billy's masculine beauty and boyishness and a a kind of natural aristocrat and claggers all in the shadows of this cloistered and unexpressible homosexuality. And I woke up thinking, I wonder if that is the the hint of what has been the problem with some of these, these repeating male figures that have been problems in, in my life. That kind of, you know, subject. I was going
0: to point out when you were mentioning that he kept pointing out the eye thing. I said, it sounds a bit gay to me.
2: Yeah. It felt gay. Yeah. It, it, yeah. what, what
1: now i think about i think it's really clear yeah Uh, mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's it so so are you are you grabbing
0: something deeper from the dream in terms of the masculine vital billy bud versus claggart dichotomy or was that just the the kind of perception that you had on it
1: well i think first of all that, that that the the billy budd thing the art, you know the essay that i wrote years and years ago is really uh looked at some of the the issues of um homosexuality in melville in new ways and i was i think was really right and when i i actually have that um it's called dark Seder and it looks mm-hmm. at homosexuality in um Benito Mm Sereno, Billy Budd. And I mean, I think people understand that in Moby Dick, it really, I mean, you don't need to sort of make that case there, but it's an undercurrent in Melville that's very, very confusing and difficult. But Claggard is one of those figures that I've, I've known a lot. I've actually seen that come up a few times. It's a kind of, of psychological predation and, I think of them as predatory people. And I've known a few people like that. And when I was younger, I didn't know how to deal with it. Because I I felt so alienated by that strangeness. They weren't straightforward. They weren't the obvious physical bully or the gangster or, you know, someone really kind of coming at you in a very direct way. Mm -hmm. And probably, I mean, you might be the same. All of my best male friends growing up first had a fight with, you know. It was what you did. My stepbrother and I fought every day. We mm-hmm. we took ambush to an art form. We mm-hmm. would like really hurt each other. And people would go, you know, you can't do that. And they said, you know, is this something that's, you know, terribly wrong in your adult environment? And we said, no, this part is the good part. They're letting us do that. <laughs> you know, is,
0: we're having fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's where this subterranean uh it's not the only time that I think where people are broadcasting and projecting in very insidious sort of subways, but I think there is a lot of um closeted sexual uh instinct that I've encountered in my life that I haven't known what to do how to deal with it. Right. Because I've always gotten on like if someone's the guy's straightforwardly gay, I haven't really had that many. I have had an issue with that. I remember when I was a hospital orderly, there was an ICU nurse who was uh, very gay and very accomplished. He was, you know, the highest level of nurse you could be. And he just made my life a living hell whenever I had to go to the ICU. (laughs) And finally, you know, a really down to earth. black male nurse which was very unusual then and he just goes look rogers got the hots for you and he knows you're not gay that's what this is all about i said really is that he said yeah he's a vicious guy but he's really you know that's really all it is just put Mm -hmm. that frame on it and 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 that was fine, you know
3: Mm -hmm.
1: you know he -hmm. just it it made perfect it was really so basic i thought okay you know and uh But it's when it's the Claggart figure is one of the most interesting villains, I think there is, because it it is very, very uh, ambiguous what what is driving that. But if you if you think of it as Claggart is just so he's in his own box and his the emptiness is so afraid of itself.
2: There's Mm -hmm. nothing nowhere to go. That's it. God, I love the idea of the the baby. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let me just press
2: the stop button.